Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and it's great to have you join me for this particular podcast. COVID-19 or the coronavirus has meant a range of challenges have unfolded for businesses over the past 12 to 18 months. Uh, businesses were already doing it tough, but coronavirus meant that there were a lot of people who were either limited in what they could do or effectively had their businesses shut completely. Now, what do you do in that situation? Some people are probably going to close their business. Some people are probably going to uh, change the way they do uh, work in their business. Um, And others will probably do better uh, as a result of the things they've learned over the past 12 months. Now, joining me today is someone who's got a lot of management consulting uh, experience in the area of helping businesses innovate. He's an author, he's a chairman of the CEO Institute, and he's done a raft of work across a range of sectors looking at innovation and uh, and consulting. Ben Keo joins me to have a bit of a chat about how things unfold um, in crisis and what people can do to improve their uh, their ability to get themselves out of a rut. Ben, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, a couple of things that um, fascinate me about your background, but what I'm rather than me ask you directly about that, what would your career look like to someone who'd never met you before, if you had to set it up on a uh, set it up in a post-it note or the back of an envelope? Yeah, that's always a challenging question, Tom. I used to uh, have a bit of a conversation with my dad every now and again. He, he was a lawyer and he used to say, now, what actually do you do? And I'd say, well, look, I run workshops and I help businesses uh, think about the future and then execute plans to make it happen. And he used to say things like, you mean people pay you to do that? And I'd say, yeah. I said, so essentially on the back of a postage stamp, it looks like creating a direction, executing it, uh, building innovation into the process as part of it, and it's all bundled up in a, in a, in a framework called management, education and organisational learning. It's interesting when you, when you, when you look at the area of consulting, we can play with that just for a moment or two, because uh, one of the challenges we have as a society, as uh, whether it be looking at the pandemic, looking at uh, running businesses, looking at what people do, um, we tend to get rather busy don't we in in doing tasks not necessarily looking at making things work better is that something um that we uh, that you see a lot of when you talk to people absolutely tom i mean there's a there's a fabulous uh little phrase that that i can or a little story that i can talk about but it says when you're up to your ass in alligators it's really hard to remember the objective is to drain the swamp and and for a lot of of us you know it's 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 the busyness that consumes us 
you know, and, and all of us have those days when uh, we get home and, and the, the person we're living with, husband, wife, partner, uh, says, what did you do today? And you kind of stop in the breath and say, hell, I was busy all day, but I don't think I achieved anything. I had that list of things I was going to do and I didn't get to one of them. And we all have that experience of just being flat out but not getting there. And that's the challenge with, with if you like, being a little more strategic and thinking about what's urgent and important and what are the big tasks and what are the activity-type tasks, you know, like answering the phone's an activity. It doesn't take you anywhere, but the cost of not doing it well is pretty high. Or paying your bills, you know, you've got to do it. But again, it yeah. doesn't take you anywhere. It just has to be done. Uh, and there are bigger tasks to do, but you can get so tied up in doing the things that have to be done because the cost of not doing them is high. What you really have to be looking at is the other side of the equation is what are the things that are really important that will drive you forward and create value? And that's that's the hard, it's the hard, it's the struggle for us all, you know, both in our businesses and in our lives. What kind of people do you think struggle most with stepping away from what they do every day? Because we, we've all got different personalities. Yeah, absolutely. And when you stand in front of a room talking to people, Ben, what is it that what is it that you notice about the personalities that are in front of you? Oh, well, that's a that's a really tough question, Tom. Uh, look, <laughs> I suppose that's why you're here. Uh, the, you know that the real issue is is uh, you know I think we all struggle with it. You know because. You know, uh, Oscar Wilde said, it's easy to see why people enjoy chopping wood. He actually said men, why men enjoy chopping wood, because you get an instant result. You know, you hit it with the axe, it splits. You hit it with the axe, it splits. It hit, then it goes on, you know. But So everyone likes the, uh, and I don't, I, everyone likes the instant gratification, the feel of getting stuff done, you know, whereas the big projects take a long time. So there are some people who are better at being strategic than others. And if you had to break it into, to, uh, you know, uh, personality types, you know, there are thinkers and there are doers, you know, and there are some people who are just really good at doing. You know, you give them a task, uh, they just get focused on it, a bit of like a rat with a bit of cheese, wouldn't occur to them to go around it. They just chew through it. Where there are other people who sit back and think about it and talk about it and kind of look at it and find it 25 different ways of doing it. Uh, might take a long time to do it. And in the end, they'll do it, but it'll be done differently. So when you look at a room, you know, I'd say 80% of the people in any room would be really good doers and maybe 20% are really good thinkers. Now, and that's a, that's, a, that's a trite and arbitrary way of thinking about it. But okay. it's just, you know, it's just how I think about it. Yeah, it, it, it's always fascinated me how people grapple with um, change because yeah. uh, I, I've tended to use the, the phrase occasionally on Twitter, 
people need to look at what's going on, on for example, on social media. Uh, they automatically respond to something, but they forget that they're the hamster in a wheel, right? They're not necessarily looking at what that engagement does to the overall mm-hmm. um, to, to the overall machine that is Twitter or Facebook or whatever else. They're in their own little universe having a crack at somebody or sharing something with somebody and then all the little tentacles that emerge over time, whether a post is retweeted and everything else. So it, it, it's that capacity, isn't it, to be able to step back and look at the process and how the process is doing. And that's the, that's the challenge that, that, that I've struck over, over 40 years, you know, that people are so caught up in the, you know, the moment, the hour, the day, whatever the frame is, uh, you know, I can remember working with a group of, and this was in my early consulting days in the public sector, I was working with a, a leadership group. You know, these were the heads of the public service and we got to a point and they said, uh, well, we can't make that decision because we have to consult the minister. And I said, how's the, consult, how's the minister going to make the, the decision? Well, he's going to consult with us. And I thought, that's a really interesting paradox, isn't it? They couldn't make a decision and tell the minister what to do. They had to consult with him. He couldn't make a decision because he didn't know what to do, so he had to consult to them. And so you, sometimes you get this going around in circle narrative, you know, that, that, that creates itself and in, in, stops things happening. You know, people talk about the public sector being, being, being slow moving. I think the public sector in many respects is very well managed. It just takes a long time to get things done. It's what the private sector is good at, making money. Well, there's another problem with the analogy of the public sector, isn't there? And that is, in my, I'm, I'm being a, maybe being a little mischievous here because I was reared on uh, yes, prime minister. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but in having the discussion about consulting to the minister or being consulted by, there are times, aren't there, where people in institutions don't want to change too much? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's not a human being in the planet who wants to change, particularly if it's outside their control. People want to change if they're controlling it to their way of thinking. You know, I've done a lot of yeah. work managing change and, and it's not a human being. You know, if change was easy, we wouldn't have an industry on physical fitness and diet. People spend billions of dollars. Everyone knows that if you have a healthy diet, you'll live well and you'll be healthier. But we got dietitians, we got fitness people, we got a whole, whole industry, billion dollars of industry out there uh, so that we can be healthy and fit. You know, it's a no-brainer, at least of all me. You know, I struggle with it every day. You know, a good pie is a whole lot better than a leaf, a lettuce leaf. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, and you're right, change is hard, change is difficult. People, people that need something that is momentous that forces them to reflect on things. And I guess we come to a con- convenient point uh, or a segue into what business has experienced 
during the period of the coronavirus, you deal with people in crisis or struggling with where to take the business. How does how has the coronavirus impacted those you've spoken to over the past twelve months? Well, I mean, I on a, on a regular basis meet with a lot of CEOs, and can I say in the in the first in the first window of time, the emotions ranged from shock to fear, uh, in some cases even panic, uh, kind of elements of desperation and uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, all of that was part of it. You know, it was kind of cataclysmic in its impact. You know, that first weekend and was it second weekend in March when people were debating about whether Morrison would go to the football or not, you know, businesses were in shock. Nobody really knew what was happening, you know, there was a few. And then I met with people in that fortnight afterwards and it was, it fear was palpable in the room. No question, you know, people were worried about losing their businesses, having to put off staff, uh, they just didn't know, you know, how would they manage the bank? Uh, yeah, all of those questions became kind of uh, very real for people, you know. And in that, that in that first two weeks, that first month, it, it was as genuine, you know, if you had to put a word on it, just shock. And then we moved into a, uh, and that's hap- that happens in in all major change you know, particularly if it's an unexpected change. Uh, And then what happens is there's a psychological process called transition where people move into a form of wilderness. They know it can never go back to the way it was and they're in process. It's not nearly as bad as in some ways they catastrophized And, and they kind of, it is a wilderness, a fog, you know, well, we can't go back, we've got to make some decisions now, we don't know what decisions to make, Uh, let's just inch along one day at a time, you know, if we've still got a business, we've still got a banker, we've still got cash, Uh, it's all very incremental, incremental, you know, anyone who's done skiing and knows what it's like to ski in in a white house. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying and incremental, but you do know you can get down, you know, at some point in time. So, you know, all of that was very real for people and certainly people I was talking to at, at that window of time, they were still in that, what you'd call, it, it's, it's kind of a liminal moment, you know. You're, you're between times. You can't go back and you have no idea what the future looks like, but every day you're just kind of lining up and and doing what you have to do to stay in business. And that was that was palpable. And that went, with some of the people I went, that went for two or three months. And then after that two or three months, it might have been a month in some cases, but mostly two or three months, after that two or three months when, when the world didn't come to an end, they still had businesses, people started to say, oh, well, you know, I've, you know, made some hard decisions here. Maybe this this 
this isn't going to turn out as badly as I thought. They hadn't quite reached the point to say, we can do this, but they were in that window of time, you know. And they'd learned how to use Zoom and they were all working from home and they never, some never believed that had worked and all of a sudden it was working. Uh, what, because they had to make it work? Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, it was, they didn't have an option. <laughs> so they're going to run a business. You know, I was talking to one young man who, uh, and I talked to him offshore, he runs a major business in the United States. He hasn't left home now to work for 10 months and he runs a billion-dollar business. Because he's not the only one that's, uh, that's in that situation. Exactly. Now, in Australia, I'm working mostly with small businesses and some of them didn't leave home for a fair while. Uh, some of them actually over a window of time, not, not in the first few months, but they've made some really hard decisions about their business to do with technology. You know, they've said, okay, we can do this. They've downsized their rental space over the last six months. They've they worked out that if they were people, people work from home, they don't need as much space. So they started to see opportunities over that window of time. And, and, and by the time we got to the end of the year, with the ones I have regular contact with, people were starting to see, if you like, positive signs that there were good decisions that they'd made that they'd been putting off. It had forced them into a situation where they'd really had to look hard at their business and decide what, what was it they were doing well, what could they let go of, uh, where could they save travel. I was talking to a number of them who talked about how much money they've saved in travel and they can't believe they went to Sydney or Melbourne every week when in point of fact they could do it every month. Uh, and that's, you know, that's those little things have, have made, you know, interesting differences. Some of them have, one guy said to me, he'd never participated in so many webinars in his life. He'd learnt more formally in the last six months than he'd done in the previous two years, both with the actual confrontation with the COVID and then the opportunities that provided for him when he was working from home to take on some learning processes at the same time. It was quite extraordinary. There's been some really interesting stories in my, in my small world, if you like, about how people have managed it, you know. And, I mean, I don't work at the top end of town, so I'm talking about, you know, uh, businesses under 30 mil. You know, there's a lot of them in Australia. Uh, in fact, they're the guts of the economy. And some of these people have are coming to came to the end of the year suggesting that uh, they were in a stronger position at the end of the year than they were at the start of the year. That's actually uh, an interesting observation because uh, for many people when COVID hit, you would have thought that the first reaction, as you outlined, would have been uh, absolute fear at what all this meant. It was, yeah. Now, you also need to talk to you about your book, Looking at Innovation. Yeah, yeah. How does he... It came out late in 2019. Yep. Um, and you've obviously looked at a whole raft of issues in relation to COVID over the past 12 months. Um, what are the other unique things that you say in the book about the area of innovation that 
that might help a business person sitting here listening to us having this discussion today? Look, I, I, th- I think uh, there's a couple of messages that, that uh, I think are absolutely critical that come out of this. Australia, you know, it's, look, there's no question at all. I mean, who would want to live anywhere else in Australia? You know, we're, we're, we're in a very gifted position, but we've kind of adopted... Before COVID, we had this little story running that look how clever we are. We've had 29 years of continuous economic growth. It's never been done anywhere before in the world, you know. Look how... We can do this no hands. And there was a notion of complacency about that conversation, which I found a little bit disturbing, you know, and with the best intention of the world, Prime Ministers, you know, Howard said, you know, Australians are entitled to feel relaxed and comfortable. And Tony Abbott said, uh, you know, living in Australia is like winning the lottery. Now, both of those things are true, no question about it. But what we do know from economic history and social history is that cycles come to an end. And I don't believe, and part of the thesis of the book is that we are so complacent, we kind of were taking our success for granted. And what we needed to do was confront some brutal facts. And there are plenty out there. And CSIRO, I mean, since COVID has just reduced a paper that suggests that, you know, we're really just a nation of adopters we're not innovators at all we kind of tell a bit of an innovation story but there is very little industry out there built on our r&d you know most of our wealth is created uh, mining and agriculture and 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 historically you know that we we were considered to be uh, the quarry and the farm of the world sort of thing and my suggestion was uh and post I beg your pardon. Post the uh, the economic restructuring of the of the nineties, what became patently clear right at the start of COVID is we didn't have any manufacturing capacity, you know, and we were totally dependent on China for a whole range of things because the globalisation push had created a race for the bottom in terms of costs, and so we we offshored everything that that. Uh, that was possible so we'd have the cheapest possible price for our consumers. And that's that's fabulous. But uh, when it time to came to make, you know, personal protective equipment, we couldn't do it. We had to kind of, businesses had to pivot so that we could do things like that. So so the whole issue of, of our current position in the world, I started to have a really good look at. And the reality is, it doesn't matter which index you look at. There's a whole range of indexes out there. There's the innovation index and the competitive index and whole, you know, manufacturing index. We're on a good day mediocre in the context of the rest of the world. And in terms of manufacturing, we're, we're in the bottom 10% as a manufacturing, a value creator. You know, so we're not exactly, if you like, stellar performers in a whole range of areas. You know, innovation, you'd think we'd be pretty innovative. We spend a bucket load of money on R&D, but we're not in the top 20 in the world. So I started to think about this and think, there's nothing we can do about it historically, but we can say if we want to be a viable, prosperous country 
in the 22nd century, the late 21st century, we have to do something different. And when you start to look at it, you start to think all of our conversation in Australia uh, historically has been about, you know, internal issues, you know, the redistribution of wealth as distinct from the creation of it. And in fact, in my lifetime, I can't remember a conversation where we talked about wealth creation. You know, we talk about productivity, we talk about welfare and social justice, and, and all of those are really important. I mean, I, I wouldn't for a minute suggest they weren't. But to be able to do all that, we have to have a wealth creation sector that is dynamic, vibrant, however, you, but on the edge, on the front edge of what's happening in the world. And at the moment, that's not happening. You know, a lot of our R&D... And, and we do a lot of great R&D and we, in some areas we, we lead the world. But none of it gets commercialised in Australia. Most of it gets commercialised offshore. In fact, Ian Fraser, who I've had a number of conversations with, suggested that, uh, you know, he would, have, he would have loved to have commercialised Gardasil in Australia. Now, Gardasil is a huge technology breakthrough for, for women uh, with cervical cancer had to be licensed offshore and manufactured offshore. Uh, just right in the middle of the COVID, someone sent me a text and announced that uh, Abbott Pharmaceuticals, which is a major pharmaceutical company in the world, was using a panbiotechnology piece as part of its diagnostic platform. Now, panbio was founded in Brisbane by a, a bunch of scientists they developed a diagnostic technology. It was listed, it got sold, then it got sold again to Abbott. So the PanBio technology that's used as the platform for Abbott Pharmaceutical Diagnostics was developed in Brisbane. We get nothing for that now. It's all been sold off. So a lot of our technology, as good, is licensed and sold off to international pharmaceutical companies or international companies everywhere. And you kind of start to ask serious questions about, well, what is it about Australia that we can't do this stuff? You know, if you look at our top 10 ASX companies, now the ASX is a symbol of, 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 of our business community, you know, a cultural symbol. You know, half them are banks. Uh, half them were started by government at some stage in the last 100 years. And uh, you kind of think, so where are the 21st century companies there? You know, there's not one uh, IT-based, platform-based business in our top 10 ISS companies. And Phil Ruthven's done some interesting research to suggest that uh, the top public companies in Australia are much less productive and much less financially rewarding to invest in than those same similar sorts of companies in the United States. So we're just underperforming in an area of wealth creation, uh, which is so pivotal to the future of Australia. And unless that changes, you know, Paul Keating's on record, or, or, or Maha, was it not Mahatia, uh, the Prime Minister of Singapore said Australia was the white trash of Asia, and Paul Keating kind of picked it up in the period of economic reform and kind of stirred Australians up a little bit by confronting us with it. But... If we're not, uh, if we don't do something, we'll sure as hell be the lifestyle trash of Asia in the next fifty years. 
we've got a few. We've certainly got a few few challenges um, coming up. Uh, and the if we can sort of look at where people can get your book. Oh, where can I get you? Where, where can I actually get your book to explore some of the issues that you've uh, highlighted in the conversation? Sure. Well, on my, uh, I've got a book website, uh, www.innovationinaustralia.com.au. Uh, uh, the books, you know, uh, Amazon, Amazon. There's an Audible and there's a hard copy available, uh, and an e- e-book. Uh, I think Booktopia. Booktopia has copies. Uh, so they're the obvious places. I mean, distribution for self-published books is a bit of a challenge, and one of the things I'm learning in my later-age career is that I'm just a not-so-humble bookseller. <laughs> oh, it's one of, those, uh, one of those interesting things that we all come across from time to time. Uh, anyone that's followed by the podcast would be aware that I've written a couple of books in the past couple of years, and it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting thing to try and get people uh, engaged enough to look at an issue in depth in an environment where everything appears to be done up in sort of thirty second grabs. Not easy. Exactly, and it, it's been. It, look, as I said, you know, I mean, you go through learning stages in your life. You know, in the first half of your life, you get yourself sorted out and you get yourself organised and. And then the second half of your life, you learn all the things that you didn't learn in the first half. Now I'm in the book, of, I'm in the phase of learning about writing and publishing books, you know, and that's existentially quite challenging. <laughs> Is anyone ever well, <laughs> well, the thing, the thing that you probably tell people uh, in your seminars uh, and in your engagement with them is that there's something you learn every day, so you're probably a beneficiary from that same advice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've been talking to Ben Keogh, the author, uh, mentor, management consultant, also the chair of the CEO Institute here in Australia. Ben, it's been delightful having a chat with you. It's been great for me, Tom. Thanks very much. Highlighting my day. (laughs) And uh, uh, to the listeners of the podcast, I'll be back reasonably soon with another podcast as well. But... um, in the meantime, uh, you can check the other other podcasts on the channel also. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. And um, no doubt we'll talk again at some stage. I look forward to that, Tom. Have a great day. You too.